Morning, church. Good to see everybody. I want to start off today with a question for you, just something to think about on your own, because, um, you know, every Sunday morning at Grace Fellowship, you can be confident that there's going to be an opportunity for us to open this book and study it together and think about how it applies to our lives. My question for you to think about is, do you eat spiritual meals from the Word of God when it's not Sunday morning? How are you doing personally in terms of just this idea that you actually hopefully own one of these books, probably in a whole bunch of different translations and different types and different styles. You probably have leather bound and hardback and paperback. You have digital Bibles and Bible study tools and all that kind of stuff. And you get the opportunity, just a little reminder, you get the opportunity every single day of your life to spend time in the living, active, life-changing Word of God. And it changes your life. Amen? Anybody agree with that? So uh, just a reminder about that, because I was thinking about this in terms of one of my very, very favorite parts of Scripture, which is the book of Ephesians. And, and I was in the first half of the book of Ephesians, and one of the things that I like to do is encourage people who are struggling with their sense of identity to dig into the first half of the book of Ephesians. The second half is great too, but the first half deals specifically with who God has made me, what God has done for me, how God has made me his own. It talks about salvation by grace through faith as a free gift, not something I have to somehow be good enough to earn, not something that I can somehow be good enough to earn, but salvation by grace as a free gift from God that just comes through faith. It talks about the principle of adoption, which we spent a lot of time in our series in the book of Romans talking about this idea that God actually offers to adopt us into his family, make us his own children, give us brothers and sisters and an inheritance shared with Christ himself. Um, and it goes on and on and on and talks about all these things that God has done for me. And it's so helpful. I would encourage all of you, if, you're, if, uh, if this rings a bell for you at all, to spend some time this week in your daily devotional time in the Word of God in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and just dig in and go, wow, this is what God says about me. But... If you read it carefully, and if you haven't figured this out, we're going to do that in a second. If you read it carefully, you're going to see that God's activity, all these wonderful things that God does for us, is not simply about me. It includes me. It involves me. Um, it, it creates a personal relationship between God and me. But all of that is described in the book of Ephesians, not in terms of me and not in terms of you, but interestingly, in terms of us. And it's really fascinating to see that. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, which is in your New Testament. Once you get past all the big, big books, you start getting to Paul's letters. And after you get to Galatians, you get to Ephesians. If you get to Philippians, you went too far. So let me just give you a second. By the way, every week I always say, tell you where the book is that you can find it in your Bible. Let me give you a hint. There's also a table of contents. 
Let's check your table of contents. It's easy to find these books. But anyway, the book of Ephesians, and, and I'm not really gonna ask you, you, just keep your finger there, but, but I'm not really gonna ask you to read along. Instead, what I'm gonna do is zoom through and highlight some points here, okay? So I'm, I'm beginning here in Ephesians chapter one and verse three. Here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He also chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. You skip over to chapter two, and this pattern just continues. It talks about you for a second, and it talks about you not in the way you want it to. It talks about you being dead in your trespasses and sins, right? All these great things for us, but you are a sinner. Sorry, Larry, I didn't mean to point at you, but you get the point. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, those are my two favorite words in the Bible, I always circle them, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. I alluded to this a little bit last week, and I've been sort of building on this concept as we've been going through this series on the church and what does the Word of God say about what it means to be the church, and hopefully by now you're starting to get the point that it's not about you and it's not about me. This is Jesus's church, and it involves us, and his plan for your life involves us us and his plan for the kingdom of God in this world involves us and until we get that through our collective thick skull we're never going to experience the coming of the kingdom that we pray for over and over again Lord let your kingdom come let your will be done so there's a lot of we's and a lot of us's in there isn't there somehow this whole salvation thing that the scripture tells us about is meant to be a collective experience. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying 
just uh, be a part of a group of Christians and that's how you get into heaven. That's not how you get into heaven. You get into heaven through a relationship with Jesus Christ that is personal and individual and for you. You don't get to ride in on the coattails of your mom. You don't get to ride in on the coattails of your pastor. You don't get to ride in on the coattails of your wife. You simply have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. All I'm saying is that those personal relationships, those individual relationships with Jesus are meant to be experienced and lived out collectively and cannot be fully experienced individually. And that is really tough for us to get through our heads because in our culture, we're fighting an uphill battle to understand this because our culture is built around the idea of independence. We're the most individualized culture in the history of the world. But the biblical picture of the church is not about independence, it's about interdependence. And that is hard for us to grasp because we're such an individualistic culture. That's why I keep hammering this drum over and over again because everything in our lives in Western culture tells us that life's really about you. And God is screaming from the mountaintops to say, it's not really about you. It's about him. And because it's about him, it involves us. And that's how we can be the best version of ourselves. So we're gonna, we're gonna come back to Ephesians, but I want you to turn to the back of your Bible and find the book of 1 Peter. So it's uh, one of the last books. You're gonna get to the books of Peter and then John and then Revelation. I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're gonna look at what Peter says about this because we've been looking at what Paul has to say, and we've seen some of what Jesus has to say about the church. And here we're going to hear from the Apostle Peter as he writes to the church. And as you're looking for this passage, let me give you some context. The church that Peter is writing to is the dispersed church. These are the people who got chased away out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. They are living in other countries. They are undergoing now great persecution where they live because the Roman Empire is beginning to come down on Christians. And so these are people who are away from their families or lost their jobs, away from their support structure, and under great persecution. And he writes to them, and here's what he says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, to the church, he says, but you, that's y'all collectively, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And we're going to take a minute and think about what this says, because uh, if, you've, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've read the book of 1 Peter, you're very familiar with this passage. He says to the church, you are these four things. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. What does all that mean? What is he saying to us? Well, first of all, he says, we are a chosen race. What a fascinating term to use, especially for those of us living in 21st century North America who are very, very well aware of the fact that race 
seems to be an issue of tension and conflict in our society. And there is a pressure upon all of us, whatever your race may be, there's a pressure on all of us to either self-identify primarily according to your race or to ignore race altogether and pretend like race has nothing to do with anything, both of which are ridiculous. Instead, we should realize that being a race, being of a certain race, being in that race with a race of people gives us camaraderie. It gives us a a commonality with a group of people, right? And so there are certain commonalities that we relate in our mind to the idea of race, and we have a racial identity. And within those racial identities, we may have certain things in common, maybe even a language that we have in common, maybe a homeland that we have in common, maybe certain foods that we have in common, maybe uh, certain ideas about life that we have in common with other people who tend to be in our race, and so we tend to group ourselves most comfortably with those who are in our race, and all of that can be overdone, and all of that can be a problem, and all of that can lead to racism, but it doesn't have to. The fact of the matter is that God placed you in it, in, as a part of a race of people, and you have something in common with them. And that's what God is saying to us here. He's saying, I have chosen you as a people who have something in common. And instead of what's in common being about skin color or what's in common being about nationality or what's in common being about language or culture or tradition, he's saying what's in common trumps all of that because what you have in common is that you are the people of God. So I have chosen you, he says, as a chosen race. It's easy to see ourselves as a group when we think in terms of race, but we don't always see ourselves as a group when we think outside of the definition of race. So he says, you're a chosen race, and then he goes on and says, you are a royal priesthood. And again, this is a term that depending on what your religious upbringing has been, you may or may not have a certain connotation of what the word priest means. If you, if you grew up in, say, the Catholic Church, where there are ordained priests, and the priests are um, people who dress a certain way, have a certain title, do certain things, and don't do other things, and they are the ones who are the go-between between you and God, and that's what you've always been taught. So if you grew up Catholic, and I didn't grow up Catholic, but uh, those of you who did will nod along with me as I say this, if you grew up Catholic, you remember that you needed to go to confession and you confess to the priest who then makes absolution for you on God's behalf and so that he becomes this bridge between you and God. The priest does that in many ways. That's not some crazy, bizarre idea that the Catholic Church just dreamed up. That's a thoroughly biblical idea that God calls people to be priests and a priest is somebody who on the one hand takes the hand of God, on the other hand takes the hand of people and brings them together. A priest, however abused the priesthood may be in various different groups of Christians or non-Christian religions, a priest is designed and called by God to be somebody who represents God to the people and represents the people to God. And he calls us a royal priesthood. Notice, he doesn't say, and you are a priest, the, the theological term, the doctrinal um, thing that theologians stress here is what we call the priesthood of all believers. 
and I don't want to get off on a, on a, in the deep weeds of a theological discussion here, but I do want to say this. Um, it's called the priesthood of all believers, not the priesthood of each believer. The idea is that we, the church, are in the role of priest. We are the priesthood. And so he says, you are a, a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, and you're a holy nation. And, and both of those words need some definition. The word nation here has to do not with um, national boundaries and uh, 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 geographical locations. It has to do with a people group. So you are a group of people, it says, who's holy. God calls us a holy, a holy nation. So what, is that, what does this mean to be called holy by God, who, by the way, is 100% in every way completely holy and who knows everything? And so when he looks upon us, my guess is holy is not the first word that comes to his mind. And yet, he calls us a holy nation. What does it mean for us to be a holy nation as the church? It means that we have been consecrated or set aside for a spiritual purpose that glorifies God. The church is called out from among the rest of people. That's what the, the word church means. The, the, um, the Greek word is ekklesia, which means called out ones. We're the ones who are called out from the group of people that make up the earth and we are there to be consecrated, to be set aside, to be used for God's purpose, whatever that purpose may be, to bring him glory. So we are a, uh, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and then he calls us one last thing. He says, and you are a people for God's own possession. Make, make close... Um, consideration of this. He doesn't say you are people for God's own possession. He says you are a people for God's own possession. He's making the distinction between the individual identities of people and our corporate identity. And he is saying you're not just people, you're a people. You're a specific called out people. More than a group of persons, a unity and I'm thinking, okay, how do, you, how do you drive this home? How do you illustrate this? And I was thinking, maybe those of you who are artists might um, think of it this way. Um, if you look at a beautiful painting, a, a fantastic, amazing work of art, a beautiful painting, what you realize is that that painting is made up of hundreds, if not thousands, of individual brush strokes, right? To add just the right shading, just the right light, uh, just the right depth, and all of that. And, and that the artist works for a very long time making brush stroke after brush stroke after brush stroke, just to make something that when you look at it, looks just like a, a, a photograph, let's say. It's a million brush strokes to make one painting. But when you view it, you don't view brush strokes, you view a painting. Do you see what I'm saying? Think of it musically. In terms of music, those of you artists will still follow along with this. Um, think of notes in a symphony. 
If you take a whole symphony played by an orchestra, it's made up of hundreds if not thousands of notes, right? Each individual note drawn on a page somewhere, each one played by a bunch of different instruments, so many notes, and each note in and of itself is beautiful, makes a nice tone, but it's not a symphony. And when you go to hear the orchestra play, you don't walk away saying, man, did they have that F sharp down. (laughs) You go, oh my goodness, what a beautiful symphony. And so it's the notes that make up the symphony, but the symphony is the point. And I'm a preacher, and so it's my job to illustrate. I'm gonna keep going. Um, let's say you're not into art and you're not into music. Maybe you're like a, a, an English nerd like I am. Think of letters in a paragraph. In, in a given paragraph, if I wrote the paragraph, it might be three, 400 words. But in most people's paragraphs, it might be 50, 60 words in a paragraph. And that par- paragraph is made up of a bunch of individual letters. Let's do some quick math in our heads, 60 words in a paragraph. Let's say that the average uh, word on your paragraph is six letters long. That's 360 word, uh, letters in a paragraph, right? And all of those letters are essential. If you think they're not, just go through and take out all of the A's, all of the R's, and all of the S's and see if it's easy to understand what's being said. The point of the paragraph is what matters, but every one of the letters actually makes the paragraph make sense. How am I doing? Are you following along? Okay, how about maybe you're a kitchen person? Or better yet, maybe like me, you're a dining room person. <laughs> and, and I want you to think about the ingredients in a cake. And, and there's, there's flour, and there's eggs, and there's sugar, and there's vanilla extract, and there's, I don't know, I, don't, I just eat them, I don't make them. There's a bunch of stuff in cake, right? And nobody takes a bite of cake and goes, oh my gosh, the flour is amazing, right? And yet, take the flour out of the cake, and it's terrible. Take the sugar out of the cake, and it's terrible. See, The the fact of the matter is, it's not just this biblical illustration of organs in a human body that we have that describes what it is to be the church. So many of the things, this is the system that God created in which we live where things are made up of components. And the components are essential to the makeup of the thing that they make up, but they are not the point. And that's how we have to begin to think of ourselves as the body of Christ. Even though most of us have trouble seeing the church that way, or at least seeing ourselves that way, nevertheless, that's how God describes his church. This is God's ideal for the church. This is God's, if you will, design for his church. Now, continuing on in 1 Peter, if you're still there, we're going to look at verse 10. We just saw verse 9 that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then verse 10 says this, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
If you go on reading, and we won't take the time to do this today, but if you go on reading, you're gonna see that it talks about how as Gentiles, we used to be aliens and strangers separated from the community of God, but God has broken down those walls in order to invite us all and make us a people so that Jew and Gentile are all part of the picture, so that male and female all part of the picture. Young and old, all part of the picture. picture. Rich and poor, all part of the picture. Slave and free, all part of the picture. Black, white, brown, green, purple, all part of the picture. That God puts it all together like a bunch of brush strokes and he paints this amazing picture that represents his own beauty and reflects his glory and that picture is called the church. And if we continue to view the kingdom of God primarily through the lens of individuality, we will continue to get a very confusing opinion of what the church is supposed to be. And worse yet, if we function not as a uh, unified people, but instead as a loose-knit group of individuals, who consider everything first and foremost from an individual perspective, we're gonna be nothing more than a group of competitive consumers fighting for our place in line. Each fighting for our own way, each struggling to get things for ourselves. Just imagine an army platoon being sent into battle and they all get to decide what their individual mission will be and what their individual role will be. And they get to do what seems best to them. What are the chances of winning that battle? Or, or maybe picture uh, a basketball team. You have a basketball team and all they know is what we wanna do is get the ball in the hoop as often as possible. And there's no game plan, nobody plays any position, everybody just does whatever seems good to them in the moment and, and tries to score as many points individually as they can possibly score, even to the detriment of the team. Imagine an orchestra that, is, that has been brought together to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but instead, every musician decides to play whatever notes they want, whatever time they want, whatever tempo they want, and whatever instrument they want. And what you have is cacophony, a horrific noise, instead of a beautiful symphony. That, to some degree, is what so many people outside of the Christian church express to me that they see when they think about the Christian church. Everybody fighting over everything, everybody on their own terms, everybody defining truth for themselves, everybody making it about themselves or their local congregation or their city or their denomination or whatever. And they look and they go, man, I don't need any part of that. It makes no sense. Everybody's running in a thousand directions. If we take that approach as God's church, the world is going to be deprived of the light that God sent us into the world to chase away the darkness that already exists here. I know I'm, I'm just overwhelming you with like cheap illustrations, but when we think about 
God, Jesus saying to the church, and you are the light of the world. You collectively are the light of the world. You, you exist to chase away the darkness. Please, don't think of a light bulb. Don't, don't think of a candle and a flame. Think of the entryway to the Plaza Hotel. And you look up at the very tall ceiling and it's the biggest crystal chandelier you've ever seen in your life. And there must be a thousand individual lights in it. And you never stop and go, look at that bulb. But you're amazed at both the beauty of the work of art and the effectiveness of diffusing light so that the entire place is lit up. That's what God is calling us to be. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 4. Because after, uh, when we get to Ephesians 4, I gave you some little glimpses of Ephesians 1 and 2, and 3 continues where he just talks about this amazing grace of God and all that he's done for us and who he's making us. We get to chapter 4, and in chapter 4, he begins to talk about the oneness of the local church and how God has made us to be one. It's all the stuff that I've been talking about for the last three weeks. And I want us to pick it up in verse 11 now of Ephesians chapter 4. Talking about the oneness of the church, here's what Paul writes. He says, and he gave some, he meaning God, gave some to the church as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Let's, let's slow down and pick that apart for a second. Verse 11, he lists some of the most prominent and recognized leadership and ministry roles in the early church. He lists them. He talks about uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He's talking about those people that stand on platforms, those people who hold a microphone or whatever the uh, microphone of the day was, those, those who uh, lead the meetings those who make the decisions, those who guide the people, those who stand before people on God's behalf. And, and he, he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. And these are the prominent, recognized, upfront ministers in a church. So it's not that Paul is abolishing leaders in the church, nor is he saying or even implying that the role of these leaders is not important. It's very important. But what is the importance? Why were these gifted ministers given to the church in the first place? Is it to do the work of the ministry? No. Look at verse 12 again. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. 
the role of those who have been gifted and placed into leadership and recognized ministry positions in the church is not to be the ones who do the ministry. It is to be the ones who invest in building up the body so that we collectively can do the ministry. If we get this mindset of us as a group primary in our minds instead of us as individuals primary in our minds, then we can see this, that we do the work of the ministry collectively. It's to equip the whole body to do the work of the ministry. And, it's, and, and these leaders are given to the church to help us as a body to grow, it says, to full maturity so that together we can do the work of the ministry. It's a building up process that God has us in. And that's why he's given us gifted ministers and leaders in the church to help us grow to full maturity and not merely as individuals, but specifically as a group. Look at verse 13. Until we all, this is the goal, that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It's the unity that we grow into together that creates this full maturity. Notice, he says that we are to grow up into a mature man. He he doesn't say that we are to grow up into mature men, nor does he say that we are to grow up into mature people. He is using a metaphor here. He's talking about how a child grows up and as it becomes healthy, becomes fully mature. And he's saying that we're to grow up and become fully mature and that's the idea of part of why he's brought us together in the church. Again, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. It doesn't say you are to grow up. It says we are to grow up. Although some of you could use some growing up. I'm not saying you can't. Okay, verse 16. From whom, speaking of Christ, even Christ who is the head, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So don't diminish the significance of the individual parts. Each individual part playing its role appropriately, each individual part being healthy, each individual part submitting to the uh, lordship of Christ, each individual part is what makes the body healthy. And when each individual part is healthy, then the body is healthy. And, And what's the point of all this? So that we will no longer be tossed around and confused by doctrinal misinformation. And you guys, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of doctrinal misinformation out there. 
There's a lot of people spewing a lot of ideas about God and the Bible that have no basis in Scripture whatsoever and have nothing to do with the God of the Bible. And there's a lot of people falling for this stuff, hook, line, and sinker, and being dragged away from Christ or being dragged into cults and all of that kind of stuff because of doctrinal misinformation. And he's saying part of God's protection for us as individual parts of the body is that the whole body would be healthy. And when we're all healthy, then we're not going to be driven driven by the winds of doctrine and some new guy shows up and starts preaching some new thing. Listen, let me just tell you something. If you're ever hearing a preacher preach and he tells you something that no other preacher has ever said, turn the channel. Because this is a fairly old book. The truths of this book are profound and deep and they are living and active but we don't need anybody coming along and saying, I've now discovered some great truth about God that no one else has ever thought of because I am the guy. Start following me. Those are the people you run from. We need to hold up the word of God and the truth of the word of God and let it be our guide. Sorry, I got a little distracted. Here's what Jesus says. He says that he was meant to be the chief cornerstone. See, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, we don't have time to look it up, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, instead of calling us a body, he calls us a holy temple. He says the church is a holy temple. And what's it made up of? All the individual stones. And and what determines the um, accuracy of the layout of that building? The cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And so we become this temple, that place where people meet God. And we have to grow up to be fully mature in Christ because Christ is the cornerstone and he's the one that gives the direction. That creates the stability for the building and we are the temple. He's the one who can make each individual part work. And not just work, but work in harmony rather than chaotically running in our own directions. In a time and a place where loneliness is epidemic, in our culture, where each person seems to cling to the right to go his own way, to define his own truth, to serve his own interests, God comes along and creates this beautiful masterpiece called the church where our individuality is not seen as a right to pursue our own purposes, but as a unique gift designed to add color and flavor to the work of art that God is producing called the church. That's what God calls us to when he calls us to himself. And that's what God is using to change the world and transform lives all around the world. It's the church. And that is the party you have been invited to attend. Welcome to the party. It's going to be a great one. Now, as I wrap up today, I'm going to ask Garrett if you can come up and and help me with this, Um, because as we've been talking about the church, we're starting to field numerous questions about, okay, if I'm going to really apply this to my life, if I'm really going to put this into practice, like what does that look like? And by the way, starting next week, we're going to do a short sermon series that is bridged to this sermon series, and instead of being about the church, it's going to be about this church. And what is it that God has called this church to be about? And what, what is the mission that this church is on? And we're going to talk about that in detail. So especially if you're new around here and you're trying to figure this out and go, hey, where do I fit? What is God doing? Um, you want to be here for those next three weeks. 
But that being said, um, there are people that are saying, okay, what do I do? How do I get involved? I've been listening. I understand that I'm not allowed to sit on the sidelines. I wasn't designed to be in the bleachers. I'm supposed to be a part of the team. What does that look like? And if you don't know, this is Garrett. Um, And uh, Garrett is our church administrator, among other things. Uh, He wears about 50 hats, which means that pretty soon he won't have any hair left. But um, he wears about 50 hats around here and kind of keeps everything functioning and moving. And um, so I thought it'd be helpful since you kind of have some expertise in all this. What what would you say if the Lord has been speaking to people and saying, hey, there's got to be another step you can take to get involved, to start using your gifts, to be a part of the body. What would you recommend um, as people who are attending Grace Fellowship? Yeah, the first thing I would say is that um, this applies to every single person in here, even if it's your first time here. Uh, we really do believe you have a place, even if it's not in this local church, you have a place in the local church, in your local community. Um, we're supposed to be the light wherever we're at, and it starts here. Um, so... Listen up, because I have some some good tips for you. You know, he's been talking about finding your your place, or we you know we chose this puzzle piece analogy as our as our uh, artwork because it's, it's a pretty good analogy. We all have a puzzle piece that we're shaped like, and we fit in somewhere. Um, so if that's been on your heart the last few weeks, we've been going through this series. Um, we try to do what we can to set you up for success, to where. You can easily start trying to fit that puzzle piece into different places. So one of the best ways, if not the best way, which is why I have my phone out, is our Church Center app. And if you're not familiar with the Church Center app, this is the day you download it and get familiar with it. Um, All you have to do is just download it, find our church, which is on there, easy to find. I think it goes by location, so especially if you're here, it's like the first thing that pops up. Um, And then you just kind of look around. Uh, there's a new profile setting, and it, and it kind of shows you everything in there. But really, um, one of the big things is on the homepage. We've revamped our homepage recently. And if you scroll around, you'll find some information. But you'll also find this cool button. I don't know if the camera can pick that up, but it says looking to serve on there. All you got to do is click it. And then when you click it, there's options. There's places you could be like, oh, uh, maybe I'm not all that great with kids. Uh, but I love our seniors. Well, great. There's places you can look through and maybe let us know you're interested in serving. Now, if you know, this doesn't mean um, we're going to have 50 people clicking on it and saying, I want to play the drums in the band. Okay, well, we can't have 50 people play the drums in the band. That is true for every single uh, place that we uh, need serving in. But the fact is, there's somewhere for you to serve. So we tried to make it easy for you there. We used to even have this cool like next steps area that you can easily click on. Um, that is another place where maybe it's not just serving somewhere is what you need to be doing, how you need to be um, clicking in with the church. But it's a place where, hey, I need to get baptized. Hey, I need to learn more about what membership is at Grace Fellowship. Or, or maybe uh, I'm having a child. I want to dedicate my child to the Lord. There's something for you where we can fit that puzzle piece in to keep using that same analogy over and over. So there's tools, right? The Church Center app. The church also has a great website. It's graceduarte.com. All of those things, you get answers to questions. You can get connections to the church staff and the pastors and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But I would say this. All ministry is about relationships. I I feel like I want to get a tattoo of that on my forehead. All ministry. There's plenty of room on my forehead. I could do this. (laughs) 
big letters. All ministry is about relationships. So guys, whether you're someone who needs to be ministered to or you're someone who wants to minister to somebody else, it's done in relationships. So I would encourage you, get involved in a grace group. It's not too late to sign up for grace groups. They're starting after next Sunday with their regular meetings again. Get involved with a grace group. Do individual discipleship. Meet one-on-one. You don't need the church to offer a program for this. Find somebody that you know and that you're friends with and develop that friendship. Meet once a week for coffee. Read a book together. Study the scripture together. You can do that. Um, We have Bible studies. We have Bible studies for men, Bible studies for women. We have stuff for teenagers and kids and all that kind of stuff. But find a way to get involved and develop those relationships. That's the starting point. The Spirit can guide you from there. And Also, by the way, you mentioned our website. Uh, that's another great tool. We try to make it really easy for you guys. We even put on the sound booth where Jordan's standing in the back, and then also on this side, both sides of the sound booth. Now you can't escape without seeing this. There is a, a QR code, really big. You just hold your phone camera up to it, and our website pops up. It leads you to the page where you can connect with a bunch of stuff. So that'll make it even easier for you if you're here. Yeah, very easy. So, uh, what if you want to get involved in some kind of service? Like you mentioned this briefly, but what do they need to do? They use the app for that? Yeah, it's really the easiest way to do it. Um, even if you come talk to me, which is definitely great because then I can kind of put a face to a note. That's awesome. Um, but I'm going to direct you to the app where it says looking to serve and it, you just click on it. It's self-explanatory from there. We try to make it as easy as possible because we want to give you guys a chance to serve and we want to give it us a chance to serve you so there's also events and different stuff where you can look at that are maybe a place that you can um, kind of dip your toes in a little bit. And I'm going to close with this thought which is something I've been trying to highlight each week of this series and that is that when we think about ways to plug in and do ministry we tend to think okay well there's kids connection or there's coffee bar or I could teach a bible study or play in the band Guys, 95% of the ministry that needs to be done is not a church program. Don't think you're being recruited to fill out the rosters of church programs. God has placed you in a neighborhood. That's your ministry field. God has placed you in a job site. That is your ministry field. God has placed you in a classroom. That's your ministry field. God has placed you in a family. That is your ministry field. I'm not saying everybody's got to get on one of the ministry teams that make the programs go at the church. If God's called you to that, great. We need your help. But you guys, most of the ministry that takes place doesn't take place on this campus. It takes place somewhere else in lives of people who are touching the lives of people. You don't need to have a pastor running a um, program in order for it to be effective ministry. If the Lord has given you the Holy Spirit and a love for people, you can do that. We're gonna be talking about that a whole lot more over the next three weeks. So for now, let me invite you to stand and let us pray for you and then we're gonna send you on your merry way. God, we want to say thank you that in your perfect wisdom, you have decided to place us each one as individual members in one body. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the head of the body, and it's not up to us to determine what needs to be done or what it's all about. You, Father, have already determined all of that. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have said that we are your church and you will build your church. And so all the pressure comes off of us. It's not about us building an organization or an an entity. It's about what you're doing in the lives of people. It's about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And so we pray for your grace to fall on us and flow through us 
so that the world might know that you are God, that they might give you glory. Lord, that you who are the light of the world would flow through us, enlighten us as a, as a church family and as individuals that we might carry that light to the darkest places. And we give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.